Well, good morning. And uh, thank you for coming <clears throat> to Crescent today. And if you were here last week, thank you for coming back. As you know, we are studying the first four chapters of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And last week we saw that one of the reasons for Paul writing to the church at Corinth was to deal with the problem of division and disunity that had risen among the believers. Paul's way of dealing with the problem was to remind the Corinthians of the gospel he had preached to them. And he showed to them that the message of the cross ran counter to the accepted norms of the day, norms which placed the highest value on human power and human wisdom. And he demonstrated that God had paradoxically displayed his wisdom and power in the apparent foolishness and weakness of the message. And Paul's decision to forego human wisdom in his preaching and concentrate on Jesus Christ and him crucified was to show that the faith of the Corinthians, in the words of verse 5, might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And that is where we left off last week. And our task this morning, and Judith has read the verses to us, is to look at the rest of chapter 2 under the title, Forming the Mind of Christ. As we have said, up to the end of verse 5, Paul has talked about the foolishness and the weakness of the message of Christ crucified. <clears throat> Paul does not, of course, believe for one minute that the message of the gospel is at all weak or foolish. But in the event that some of the Corinthian converts might think of it in those terms, he adds a corrective in verse 6. And so he says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. That is not to say that Paul is introducing a new or a different message. He is still focused on the message of the cross and its wisdom and its power. But now he is dealing with a deeper level of understanding and appreciation of that message. And this message of wisdom is for mature Christians. It is for those who have a better grasp of the realities of their faith and who wish to explore those realities further. But so far, Paul has not been able to preach 
this message of wisdom among the mature to the Corinthian believers. We know this from the opening verses of chapter 3, where Paul tells them that they are worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. And in verse 6, Paul contrasts this message of wisdom among the mature with human wisdom, which he describes as the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. And in verse 7, he elaborates and he refers to this message of wisdom among the mature as God's secret wisdom. The authorized version, I think, refers to it as the wisdom of God in a mystery. And Paul now begins to examine some aspects of this secret wisdom. There are three features to note, I think. All of them are found in verse 7. There we see that this secret wisdom is a wisdom that has been hidden. It is a wisdom that God destined for our glory. And it is a wisdom from before time began. We look at these in a different order and take the last one first. So firstly, God's secret wisdom was planned by God before time began. The death of Christ was not an accident. It was part of the Father's eternal plan. This was confirmed by the Lord Jesus himself. For example, in Luke's gospel, he asked, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And in John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The apostles too recognized God's plan in their teaching or their preaching. For example, when Peter preached in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, he told the crowd, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And in his first epistle, Peter writes, he, that is Christ, was chosen before the creation of the world. 
what was revealed in these last times for your sake. And so God's secret wisdom was planned by God before time began. Then secondly, God's secret wisdom was hidden by God for generations. Now the words for generations do not appear in verse 7, at least not in the NIV, which I'm using. But the sense is implied and is confirmed elsewhere in Paul's letters. <clears throat> so, for example, he would write to the Colossians, I have become its, that is, the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. And again, in the closing words of his epistle to the Romans, Paul will refer to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. So God's secret wisdom was hidden by God for generations. And then thirdly, God's secret wisdom was destined by God for our glory. We go back to Colossians and following on from the words we have just quoted, we read these words. To them, that is the saints, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is in Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But it is in his letter to the Ephesians that Paul deals with this subject in the most sublime detail. What Paul describes in 1 Corinthians as God's secret wisdom, he calls in Ephesians chapter 3 a mystery or the mystery of Christ. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 to 11. You might want to follow those in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 to 11. <clears throat> Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, 
members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make known to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, to those verses, there is nothing that I can usefully add. Those words speak for themselves and they complement perfectly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians about God's secret wisdom destined for our glory. But we can highlight two verses in the Ephesian passage. The first is verse 3, where Paul refers to the mystery made known to me by revelation. And the second is verse 5, where again Paul refers to the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. That leads us neatly back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and to verse 8, where having described these three aspects of God's secret wisdom, Paul declares that this wisdom is incomprehensible to the rulers of this age. And this secret wisdom would have remained unknown. But, in the words of verse 10, God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. So we have God's secret wisdom planned by God before time began, hidden by God for generations destined by God for our glory. And all of this is only accessible and knowable through the revealing work of the Holy Spirit. And to emphasize that the secret wisdom of God can be known only by revelation, in verse 9, Paul quotes loosely from Isaiah chapter 64. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 
seeing, hearing, thinking, the usual means by which we learn and acquire knowledge. None of these faculties are capable in themselves of discovering the secret wisdom of God. What God has prepared for those who loved him, love him cannot be worked out by logic or by the power of the intellect, nor in the words of verse 6, by the wisdom of this age. We can only know this secret wisdom of God if God chooses to reveal it to us. Paul made this very point to the Galatians. In chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And in the rest of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul continues this examination of the role of the Spirit in relation to God's secret wisdom. And one way of breaking down the passage, and one way of perhaps remembering a summary of it, is to see in verses 6 to 10a the secret wisdom of God revealed by the Spirit. And then in verses 10b to 16, the secret wisdom of God imparted by the Spirit. And so we have seen the secret wisdom of God revealed by the Spirit. But if the Spirit has revealed the secret wisdom of God, how does the Spirit impart the secret wisdom of God. Well, the verses that follow suggest that he does so in three ways. Firstly, the Spirit enables us to understand God's secret wisdom. In verse 10, we read, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. In verse 11, he also knows the thoughts of God. But verse 12 is the key verse. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. The American scholar D.A. Carson sums this up perfectly. There has not only been an objective public act of divine self-disclosure in the crucifixion of God's own Son, but there must, must also be a private work of God by His Spirit in the mind and heart of the individual. That is what distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. 
the mature from the people of this age and the rulers of this age. If we see the truth of the gospel, therefore, it has nothing to do with our brilliance or insight. It has to do with the Spirit of God. And if we should express unqualified gratitude to God for the gift of his Son, we should express no less gratitude to God for the gift of the Spirit who enables us to grasp the gospel of his Son. So the Spirit enables us to understand and appreciate what God has given us. The second way in which the Spirit imparts the secret wisdom of God is that the Spirit enables us to articulate God's secret wisdom. Verse 13, we speak not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. It is the Spirit of God who enables men and women to understand the message of the cross. And it is the Spirit of God who teaches them to proclaim that same message in a way that is appropriate to the message. This has a particular relevance for preaching. Paul has already reminded the Corinthians at the beginning of chapter 2 of what his preaching was not. It was not with eloquence nor superior wisdom, nor was it with wise or persuasive words. And he reiterates this point in verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. It is said that every time Charles Haddon Spurgeon climbed the steps to the pulpit in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. On each step, he would say to himself, I believe in the Holy Ghost. And he would repeat those words on every step until he reached the pulpit. He was acutely aware that if his preaching was to have any effect, it had to be imbued with the power of the Spirit. So the Spirit enables us to understand God's secret wisdom. The Spirit enables us to articulate or communicate God's secret wisdom. And thirdly, the Spirit enables us to discern God's secret wisdom. Verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 
and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. William mentioned at the outset my legal as opposed to illegal background. Many years ago, I was involved in some trial or court proceedings. I can't remember the details, but I had instructed a barrister to appear for my manifestly innocent client. And at some stage, perhaps when the proceedings were over, the barrister and I were chatting. The conversation turned to spiritual things and I must have shared with him what I believed. He listened. And then, I've never forgotten this, this very accomplished and able lawyer, the man whose trade was in wise and persuasive words, shook his head and said, I just don't get it. He wasn't being antagonistic. He was just a man without the Spirit, unable to accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, things which he could not understand. But the Christian is different. He or she has the Spirit. Paul will develop this theme in chapter 3, where he will teach the Corinthians that they are a temple in which God's Spirit lives. And that takes us back to John's Gospel and the Lord's promise to His disciples as He prepared to leave them. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So here again, Paul brings before us another contrast between the man without the spirit and the spiritual man. The man without the spirit lives as if there is nothing more than the physical and the material. On the other hand, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Paul will later write to the Romans, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And it is this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that enables the spiritual man to discern God's secret wisdom. Our time is done, so we'll skip to the end. And tying our thoughts together, Paul has moved from a message of foolishness to those who are perishing, to a message of wisdom among the mature. He calls this message God's secret wisdom. It is a secret wisdom that has been planned before time began. 
It has been hidden by God for generations. It is destined by God for our glory. This secret wisdom has been revealed by the Spirit. This secret wisdom has been imparted by the Spirit. That's possible by Him helping us to understand God's secret wisdom, by helping us to articulate God's secret wisdom, by helping us to discern God's secret wisdom. The believers at Corinth needed to bury their differences and forget what particular faction they belonged to. They needed to understand and appropriate the secret wisdom of God and embrace the message of wisdom among the mature. By so doing, the Corinthians would know what it was to have the mind of Christ. And then Paul would have the desire of his heart expressed in verse 10 of chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the reverent attention paid to it. We thank you for your secret wisdom revealed to us through your Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would help us and enable us to delve deeper and further into that secret wisdom, and that we may indeed form the mind of Christ. Amen.